Last week we began looking at the, the letter the Apostle Paul had written to the Thessalonians. And I gave an overview of chapter 1, but then we dug down more on verse 3. And so we're going to continue in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. In part 2 of a sermon, How the Gospel is Received. And we'll specifically be looking at verses 4 to 7 in more detail. But the title has two aspects to it. There's the aspect from the Apostle Paul. The sermon is to inform those who give the gospel. How do we know that those who hear what we would tell them, what we would preach, what we would teach, actually receive these things in a transformational way? Many of us, I think, could give the testimony that we have shared the gospel and then later seen that it did not take root. What are we to look for in those who have received it that would indicate to us that the gospel is received? And so last week we were looking at what Paul noted, that they received, the Thessalonians received the message by faith, their motive was love, and there was an abiding hope forming in them. And so this morning we look for a few more indicators, that there's joy in their affliction, but mainly that there's a repentance. There's this word that's going to come up. They became imitators of Paul and of God. We would want to know that whenever we share the gospel that it's not choked out. Usually those who receive it in joy and then it's choked out, they're the last ones to know. But from the outside, you can see and observe that there's no indicators there. And so Paul, knowing that these Folks, we're in that midst of affliction, the very factors that could choke out the word of God. He's rejoicing in in this letter here because he says it wasn't choked out. The very affliction that would steal from some has caused this to grow, not only just to bud, but to produce fruit. And so he's praising God. And in a second sense, our title, How the Gospel is Received. This is a message to inform the hearer. How do we know that we have truly received the gospel? And ultimately, what we have here in 1 Thessalonians, we're, we're like looking over the shoulder of the Thessalonians. You know, this was a letter given to them, so we're reading somebody else's mail. And what Paul said, whenever I was there, what was my experience? What was my observation? He says, this is praiseworthy. This is where it started. We knew that the gospel had come to you in power and full conviction. And then he gives evidence. So as we peer over their shoulder to see this, and we get the benefit of knowing, what does it look like to know that salvation actually took root? How do we know that what we truly believe is legit? And in the times of counsel, do you know how frequently that question comes up? Am I truly saved? Because often, where do people look in order to understand if they're truly saved? Who do they look at? Themselves. So if you look at a sinner to see if he's a saint, what are you going to find? Doubt. So this letter gives the assurance to the Thessalonians because we have the apostle saying, I know what was going on behind the scenes. I know what you had received. I have seen this and I saw the fruit. I saw something change. And he gives them assurance that 
we can take likewise. So a quick review. How Paul got to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 16, if you remember, he had a vision where there was a man from Macedonia who said, come over to Macedonia and help us. He didn't mix that one up. It's pretty clear. Come here and help us. So in route to Thessalonica, he first went to Troas, and then he went to Philippi. And if you remember in Philippi, whenever he showed up, there were not a whole lot of Jews. He actually went and found some women who were worshipers of God, and that's where the church started, with a couple of women. But what got him sent out of Philippi was that there was a slave girl coming around behind them saying, these men are true disciples of Christ. I mean, that's, that's a testimony right there. If somebody chased you around and said, this is the legit preacher of God, so he cast the demon out, and it wasn't the, the Jews that had a problem with them. It was the, this, this little girl was their moneymaker. So he, he messed with their income. And so, naturally, what flows from that, he was beaten and imprisoned. They did not like this. But in Acts chapter 16, consider where we are in Thessalonians. These are the events leading up to it. In Acts chapter 16, verses 25 and 26, after Paul had received this vision, this happens. So he's in prison with Silas. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Would that be a slight indicator to you that God is on your side? That God is made. I mean, even chains and prisons can't hold you back, but miraculous intervention. So we have him there leaving Philippi and he heads to Thessalonica. And chapter 17 of Acts is where he's now on the ground and he's preaching the gospel. They gave him three Sabbaths to go into the synagogue there where the Jews were and to reason with them and to explain the scriptures. And he's seeing transformation. So the point at which we get this letter, start adding this up. There's a vision in the night that says, come here. You have people proclaiming that this is legit and effective. You're arrested, but an earthquake sets you free. You now get to this new city and you're able to have three Sabbaths where you explain everything to them. Nobody misunderstood. In Acts 17, they just got jealous. They got angry because he was a rival. So you know everybody understood. And you're seeing conversions. The preaching is powerful. People are changing their lives. Lifelong idol worshipers are coming to imitate the living God. If you press the add button to all of those and you press equal, you now get his perception, the Apostle Paul's perception and understanding of why he has so much confidence whenever he writes this letter back to the Thessalonians. So we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I'm going to go through 10, even though we will focus specifically on 4 to 7. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Before we go any further, let's pray. Lord, there, there are things that stand out to us for sure in the word of God. This is not just a random recording. This is not just an incidental letter. But this is the Word of God recording the time, Lord, that you intervened to save those in this city. And Lord, you've preserved this and you've brought this to us here today. Lord, I pray that in the quietness of our hearts as we hear the Word of God, that we would understand it, Lord, and receive it. And Lord, that we would be encouraged that the evidence of that reception is that the work that you promised to do to transform us from one degree of glory to another, Lord, that that would be encouraging to us, visible to us. Lord, that we would have great confidence that our lives are praising you. And Lord, let our, let our lips match that in the things that we say. So Lord, do your work. Transform us, Lord, and may we be willing imitators and participants to your work in our lives. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. If we start with verse 4, is there something that stands out? Is there a claim that Paul makes that is profound? Yes, there is. And then he gives support. So this morning, we're going to take those two, his claim and his evidence. And we start in verse 4 with this statement. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's, that's powerful. I mean, the pursuit of assurance is a pursuit of peace and rest. We long for that. And up front, Paul is saying, for we know that you've been chosen. But in order to really paint this picture, as you're looking in your copy of the scriptures and you're looking at that, it's the sentence structure that lays out in an inarguable presentation of the election of God. So it's the structure that does it. Starting in verse 4, he says, For we know, 
And we, this word know in the Greek, we understand it. He's, this is a certainty. There's no question about it. This is firm. We know. And the he is God, that he has chosen you. But this word chosen stands out to us. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. As a definition, this is a selection out of one given outcome. And do you just dangle there in the air in a third place? But it's selection out of one and purposefully put into another. So there is, the, the word is translated election or chosen. There's only two options here. But this actually has the angle of possession or ownership. So whenever God chooses, there is a sense in which he now owns this. He's taking it out of one realm, out of one destination, and placing it not in another, but, but in Christ, in himself. This, this ownership to it is helpful for us. But the way the sentence is structured, the, the people at this time, they didn't have highlighters. They couldn't like control and then B for bold or underline or italicize. So how did they emphasize without sending a letter with like, you know, a few circles on it and an arrow? I mean, if you're under 30, then you put it like in all caps, right? That means serious business. Therefore, don't put your whole email in all caps because that's the way to uh, communicate that you're yelling. No, we might enunciate, we might italicize, put it in boldness. But these four words, it's the word chosen is in what's known as the middle voice. Okay, this doesn't translate well to English, so I have to give some descriptions of it. But it's the emphasis that he has. The middle voice, the emphasis is on the subject rather than the action. So if he says... He has chosen you. Which one is the subject? He. Which one is the action? Chosen. So if it's in the middle voice, the italicized word is not he, or it, it is he. It's not chosen, and it's not you. So Paul's not communicating. He has chosen you. <laughs> Nor is he saying, he's chosen you. But what is he saying? He's saying he has chosen you. The emphasis there, he's putting the emphasis on he, God, God has chosen. And whenever you, the chosen part there, that ownership, he's communicating. It's not just that he has chosen you like this was a raffle. But he's saying he owns you. I know, Paul says, we know, brothers loved by God, that God owns you. But if you had an owner, who would you want it to be? God owns you now. Praise the Lord. But so it's not, I know that God chose you because... So Paul is not giving this evidence in this context. 
I know that God chose you because you're doing X, Y, and Z. The focus of this is I know God chose because when God chooses, these things happen. The effects of God choosing a man and now owning him is who comes to life in where you were dead, who comes to life? Christ, and thereby you. I know God chose you because Christ is alive. Is this a nuanced shift? Is this just a slight variation in how we read it? Or this emphasis, it restructures the way that we think. Because in American thought, if you had two options here, if X was chosen, where does our mind go? Well, what's so great about X that you chose it? And we focus on the subject. Yeah, or, or the, 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 yeah, the recipient. We focus on, so there was a fork in the mo- road and I chose X. Oh, well, you know, what is it about X? Where in the Greek mind, it was, if X was chosen, what does this say about you that you would choose X? Or that you would choose Y? In biblical counseling training, this, this is it. What is the goal of biblical counseling? To help, whether it's a counselee or a trainee, you're trying to help them think biblically. Okay. So you're trying to change the thoughts in not looking at, well, whenever the fork in the road was there, why did you choose that way? I mean, you chose X. At that, at that prime decision point, you chose X instead of Y. Well, X is a bad choice. We know that. I mean, you could have seen that coming a mile away. You should have chosen Y. And if you chose Y, then all your problems would be solved, right? I mean, that's just obvious to us. We want to remove that thought and replace it with this. In this decision where you came to that fork in the road, you chose X instead of Y. What is it about you that would desire that outcome rather than this one? What is it going on in the heart of the chooser? And whenever you begin to analyze people that way and help them to analyze themselves, they begin to see their heart. Why did you yell at your spouse instead of talk kindly? I mean, the Bible says, you know, gentle answer turns away wrath. Should have chosen that. Better choice. Voila. And then they say, okay, well, next time I'll just kill them with kindness because I'm doing Bible stuff, right? Never coming to that fork in the road and considering how do I think? What, to analyze myself, what is in my heart? And we could ask this same thing here in verse 4. What is going on in the heart of God that he would choose mankind? It begins to amaze you, doesn't it? There must be something about God. What is the act? Who is this God that he would choose us or you? Because I know who you are. I know who I am. I see what kind of life and society we build. Why would God even pause or slow down? And let alone that, the lengths at which he went to, how great is our God? So can you see Paul's difference here, his emphasis? 
Do you, now you understand why Paul says it was not flattery. It was not deception. In chapter 2, he says, we weren't there in a pretext of greed. No, he writes this with full confidence. I trust God chose you because the changes that have unfolded are of God. And he continues this as he says, we know that he has chosen you because he sent the gospel to you not only, or, yeah, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And again, this sentence structure matters. I'm using the ESV and verse 5 starts out this way. Because our gospel came to you, not in word only. And whenever we understand that, it could, we could believe that he's saying, we know that, you, that God chose you because you did X, Y, and Z. Because you began imitating us, therefore God chose you. But there is no way they could have mistaken that. The way that this is written, it clearly is communicating We know that as evidenced by, we know God made this decision. How? Well, the evidence bears it out. The emphasis there that Paul is highlighting, the banner, is that God chooses. The consequences of that, they highlight, they emphasize. And this really takes the conversation in in a different direction. eliminates us viewing ourselves as worthy to have been chosen. But I want to pause on this thought right here, on this idea that that God owns us, and therefore the evidence of that is borne out. And I I want you to snapshot that, and I want to come back to that in just a moment, because I want to widen this lens. I want us to all be convinced that God is truly the elector. So I'm going to take five minutes, maybe not five minutes. Listen to these passages. Tell me if you are not convinced. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. John 17, 1 and 2, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So not all who came to him, but all you have given. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3, according to this great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So we're passive. Nobody birthed themselves. He caused us to be born again. Titus 3, 4, and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that one might boast. Romans 9, 11. Though they were not born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And adding verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. It's possible, and it happens, that 
men could go through the scriptures, take portions out of context, and teach salvation by works. But First Thessalonians 1, you would have to do a real bad job to get there. Because the way that Paul writes this, he's saying, we know God chose, here's the evidence. And he never mixes that up. Those errors would have to come from ourselves. Those would have to come from a desire to prove that my works make me worthy. It's poor interpretation, poor hermeneutics. No, we affirm solo gratia, grace alone. And you can take this all the way back from God to Moses, the prophets, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, continuing beyond that, St. Augustine, Calvin, to you, who would teach that salvation is by grace alone. Those, those old men, it didn't stop with them, right? It, it continues with, with us. None of us are on those. Uh, name recognition-wise, we might not be there, but the Lord's work continues in us. But salvation has always been by grace. God does not give us the grace to make the choice. But again, in this language, the emphasis in Scripture is on God showing grace, on God saving, God choosing. And what we have here this morning, quite simply, is not a letter, or this, this is a letter to the Thessalonians. It's not about them. This is a letter about God and his activity in the lives of his saints. Amen. This is about God and his perseverance. Uh, a quote from Spurgeon, he said, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I would have never chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. <laughs> Brutal. Sproul said, Reformed theology does not teach that God brings the elect kicking and screaming against their will into his kingdom. It teaches that God so works in the hearts of the elect as to make them willing and pleased to come to Christ. They come to Christ because they want to. They want to because God has created in their hearts a desire for Christ. God has chosen. If it were up to us, we would have chosen ourselves and those we like and done what after that? Close the doors behind us, right? But God so works in the heart of his people that when he chooses, he changes. And that's where Paul goes for evidence is that I saw, he says, the, the word of God came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. You know what men we were among you. And then he goes to the, the evidence. And I said I wanted to come back to this statement that God owns you, that God owns us, and the evidence is demonstrated. It's borne out in the change of our lives. Because if we stop at, at just verse 5, so as you're looking there, you stop at just verse 5, that we know that God has chosen you. 
because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. If we end there, we could be confused as to think that powerful preaching is all it takes. Is that all it takes? Is the right message with power? Well, later Paul warns the Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit. Why would he say that? Well, because it's possible. But also in Acts 17, whenever Paul was there, the Jews who also heard this message, they responded with jealousy. And I think each one of us would understand that it's not just the power of the preaching, as though if we go to a great church with a great pastor, then it's irresistible at that. Because we all do resist. We all do fall short of, of the Word of God being fully manifest. We know that it's not just the message. But when God chooses, is that irresistible? It is, and it, that is outside of our volition. So here is also in verse 5, we have this bit of a, a parenthetical statement where he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul obviously knew in his preaching that the Holy Spirit was active. I mean, consider all that brought him there. He This statement of him and Silas and Timothy, the authenticity, the transparency, their self-sacrifice that he goes into, he's giving the example of their lives. And this is important as he turns the corner into the evidence. But he says that this was not out of a motivation of greed. It was not out of deception. If you were deceiving somebody and they began to persecute you, what would you do? Would you keep up the ruse? You'd bail, wouldn't you? And if you were there just to bilk them for money, and they said, no, 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 you get out there and you work alongside us, would you go to the next town? Yeah. And so Paul, not giving them evidences of, of large doctrine, he says, you know we weren't there to deceive. How do you know that? Because uh, we suffered alongside you. How do you know that we weren't there for flattery? Well, because we snuck out in the nighttime, and that's not how the most famous guy leaves town. How do you know we weren't there just for greed? And he gets into this and says, you know how we worked daylight till dark to provide for ourselves that we wouldn't burden any of you. That's the opposite of somebody who is doing it for the money. The evidence that Paul points to is not in the preacher nor is it in the preaching, nor is it even in the reception. Man, you guys stayed there for all hours of my preaching. That's proof. No, he doesn't put the evidence of a changed life in that, but the evidence is in the response. It's in the repentance. Verse 6 and 7, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This word imitators, mimites. You know what English word we, we get from mimites? Mimic. 
This, uh, by definition, is one who emulates out of admiration. Okay? But in our verbiage, whenever we hear imitate, what do we think? Imposter? If this is, if, if you went to the restaurant and, they, and you sat down and they, they serve your meal and he says right before you eat, sir, this is imitation meat. The only thing you heard is, sir, warning, this is not real. Alarm bells go up. Wait, whoa, so this isn't the real thing? This is imitation. You may stand up at that point. That may be exactly what you wanted. In the English dictionary, whenever I search imitate, some of the synonyms are words like spoof, mockery, parody, to mimic somebody for comedic relief. I mean, something that is an imitation is something that you're saying. It looks like it, but it is not it. That's not what this word means in the language in which Paul was writing. There is an affection to it, a sincerity. Think of the the phrase, um, imitation is the sincerest form of, is that also mockery? No, it's a sense of there's an endearment. There's something going on in your life that as a, a not a follower is by teaching, but there's something in your life, the way that you treat other people, the way that you respond in affliction, the way that you're just joyful. I, I, I just want to mimic that. I, I, I love that about you. And I want that to spill over into my life. We'll, we'll talk about the difference here in this. What we, we may expect us to say, instead of you became imitators of us and of the Lord, you could assume that it would say, you became mathetes, which is disciples. He doesn't say, and you became disciples of us and of the Lord. He says, you became imitators of us. This word mathetes, not used here, but the definition of it is the mental effort needed to think through something so you are a, a learner, a disciple, a follower who learns the doctrine and then by lifestyle follows it. Okay, so there's two words there. Mimites and mathetes. One is an imitator, one is a disciple. What's the difference? Why did Paul say you imitated us? Well, I believe that in Thessalonica there was a very short amount of time that Paul was actually there on the ground. As we said last week, he had three Sabbaths and just for way of error, you might double that and say he had six weeks there and then he left. How much could he get done in that time? Well, it's unlikely that he would be able to, while he shared the full gospel, all of the doctrines that would flow were not possible. So in chapter 2, as he writes about his conduct towards the Thessalonians, he doesn't write about his teaching. In, whenever we get to 2 Thessalonians 3, he doesn't pull from this long, lengthy doctrine. He gives them the example, saying this, For you know, or for you yourselves know, how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. 
He doesn't say, remember the doctrine of work that I taught you whenever we had all those Sabbaths together? He didn't have time to say, here were all of the teachings. Not everything are you going to understand from up front, but that does not stop you from imitating, from a sincere love. You do what the saints do, and then you seek to be a disciple and understand as you go. Are you faking it? No. There's, there's no doctrine for some, of, uh, for some of the afflictions that they had. You are simply seeing how Paul was afflicted and saying, I'm going to imitate that in my affliction. I see how Christ was afflicted. I'm going to imitate that. Are we also going to be disciples? Yes. These are not one or the other. It's not as if you would be a disciple and not an imitator or vice versa. But it is as if we are disciples of Christ. We learn. We're taught by him. There's doctrine. There's understanding. But in our practice, we imitate the saints. We imitate the Lord. This word, mimites. Listen to the contexts with which it shows up. 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me in the context of suffering. 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, speaking in evangelism. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God in the context of self-sacrifice. In Hebrews, do not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You imitate endurance. Third John 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. So it's in righteousness. To circle back into 1 Thessalonians 2.14. For brothers, you became imitators of the church of God in Christ that are in Judea, and you suffered the same things from your own countrymen in suffering, were disciples of Christ and of Paul's teaching and imitators of their lives. God gave us an example to follow. Do you know where he gave you some other examples to imitate? I'll give you a hint. They're in this room. The church the saints. In one commentary from Barnes, he said it was not the gospel embraced as a doubtful thing. And it did produce the and it did not produce the effect upon the mind with which it caused anything that is uncertain in its character. Many people seem to embrace the gospel as if only half believed or if it were a manner doubtful on whether it's true or doubtful on whether it's important. But that's not the case with the Thessalonians. Theirs was the firmest conviction and they embraced it heart and soul. I, I heard a story. How many are familiar with Paul Washer? Okay, so I can't do it in Paul Washer fashion, but let me give some details. He was telling a story in a sermon that he had said, imagine, and 
the power of, this is in the context of the power of the word of God to change lives. He said, imagine there was a guest preacher who was scheduled to be here tonight and he was running a little bit late. And whenever he shows up, he comes in and says, oh, I had a flat tire on my way here. And while I was changing the tire, I accidentally stepped out from the side of my car. And wouldn't you know it, a full load, 40 ton Mack truck nailed me. So I was a little bit late. He said, we know the rearranging power on the body of a 40-ton, 70-mile-per-hour Mack truck. Would we say that that Mack truck can rearrange our lives more than the power of God? Is that truck more powerful than the Holy Spirit? I could add, getting hit by a truck will not separate me from my sin. Even though I have felt the power on me, is, is that moving? What? Yeah, if you get hit, none of us stop the truck, I'll tell you that. No argument can come against me. No proof, no evidence you can give me can separate me from my sin. Can you argue me out of sin? If you were to hit me with the, the power of a truck, it would not separate me. And we understand this in it can be explained to us whenever we're angry, don't we get explanations? When we're discontent, doesn't somebody want to fix our problems? Don't they talk, talk, talk? And we understand, so then why don't we change? Why is it not just knowledge only? Well, because this, in the same way, the, the power of the truck is not going to change me or rearrange me. It is, if we say the word of God is more powerful than that, then is it actively more powerful in your life? Is it demonstrating its rearranging power on your heart? Well, the way that that would happen, would you'd say the power of the word of God came to me and in receiving it, my life now goes a different direction and it continues to get calibrated so that I would walk more and more like Christ and I would become a better imitator of Christ because it's out of this affection. And, and just to... I'll, I'll say take the rest of our time on this idea of imitating. If you were to give, maybe anonymous, like a totally pretense-free answer to this question, who are you imitating? Well, this, the Sunday school answer is, is Christ, right? Is that true? Yes. Yes. If God has saved you, brought you to life, made you a possession, so God chose you, he now animates you with spiritual life. The Holy Spirit in you, reclaimed image, then yes. Yes, you are an imitator of God. 
Does it need to be refined, calibrated, revealed more gloriously? Absolutely. But yes, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is passive. We are being transformed as we behold the image of God. We are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, as it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So while our sanctification is powered, enabled, directed by that one source, which is God, the question that I would have us to think about is, is my will joined with that will? My active conscious thoughts, am I desiring to imitate God? Because if you're a Christian, then, then yes, you are imitating him. And I, I think that you would, you would understand the question here. Because what is the opposite of being an imitator of Christ? Is it being an imitator of Satan? Yeah, that, that seems like the right answer, right? But if we are faithful to the scriptures in Romans chapter 3, what does it say separates us from God? Well, in Romans 3 it says sin. So the opposite of an imitator of Christ is not one of Satan, but it's the one who does what is right in their own eyes. And that is one that hurts. Sometimes we make decisions where the will of God and our will line up. So it obfuscates it. It makes it look like it. But whenever we're in affliction, whenever things get difficult, do we just wing it? and do it our own way? Or are we now going to be those who are intentional to mimic Christ? To take the doctrines and not just apply those to our understanding, but then also walk and to look like Christ. Because back to that pretense-free question of, of who am I imitating? I know everybody in here wants the answer to be Christ. Everybody in here would say yes to the idea that if I were to spend time with you, is my experience is that I have spent time with one who is like Christ. If you don't want that to be true about you, let me know. I'd love to talk. But I know the testimony of every Christian is, yes, I want to be more like Christ. But often it's one that we can't really answer for ourselves. We may say, well, I'm imitating the, the saints. I'm imitating Paul. And for a season, I mean, Paul had a very unique life. So for a season, that may be true. But if you wanted a true portrait of yourself, can you look at yourself? I mean, to this question, if, if you knew that you had a spouse, friend, parent, child, whoever you truly trust, who would, to give you an honest portrait of yourself, would you be willing first to the question of who am I imitating? Would you receive it? Would you, would you want to receive that real mirrored image when things get difficult in my life, 
Who am I imitating? What do I look like? Well, would you have the humility to listen to that all the way through? Or do you, do you cut them off? Well, when things get difficult and there's affliction in your life, you look less like Jesus and more like... Well, none of us want that sentence to finish because we know in our pride that we look more like Jesus in our imagination than in reality. I mean, one of, one of the worst things you could hear is if somebody says, you are acting just like your mother <laughs> or just like your Everything else goes out the window at that point. It is mano y mano. And the anger of man <laughs> does not accomplish the righteousness of God. But if, if it hurts with a divine pain that I'm not responding like Christ, I, I know I'm not. Because the affliction that comes in my life, I feel more like I resemble like the Tasmanian devil. Or for some, maybe I look more like Molly Maid, you know, where they just occupy themselves with, I'm not alone on this, right? Those who in their fruster and anger, frustration and anger, they just clean the house, organize. Oh, I'm alone. If there's that divine pain, when you leave and you get in the car, in this example is brought up, are you willing to listen all the way through to that person that you love and trust giving you that honest portrait to say, when affliction comes into your life, I don't see Christ, but I could see him more if, or I would see it grow in, by example whenever this happened. You lost sight of Christ, you lost sight of this doctrine, you lost sight of this scripture, and you look more like the first step to changing there into repenting. I mean, humility has to start somewhere. Listen to that all the way through and consider if it's valid. Am I falling short in my imitation? But to, to hammer on this, it, it's low-hanging low fruit, really. Because we all know, if I were to say, are you imitating Christ? It's uncomfortable to say yes. Because we, we think through our weaknesses, we think through our, our faults, we think through our weak. And we, it, No, don't scrutinize me. I, I know I'm not like Christ. But let me advocate on your behalf. If we are Christ's possession, bought with a price, and if God is in you, transforming you, then there's some degree of Christ in you. I'm not saying that, you know, should we all be your disciples, but it's some measure you can say, you know, and I can think of examples from each one of your lives, some that you're going through right now, that I say, you want to know somebody who's going through some stuff that you would do well to imitate? You think that I don't offer up your lives as proof to the rest of the saints on how to live? I know you do. Because I've seen men go through things that no other man could. But by the grace of God, 
he was supported, lifted up. And I say, do like that. Imitate that. Go through the difficulties, the deaths, the hardships, and imitate. Is it suffering? Is it waiting? Is it miscarriage? Go through it like these faithful saints. Is it uh, the throes of addiction? Go through it like these saints. Yes, God is at work transforming you. And are we able to say, yes, he is at work? This is how you imitate it. The idea that there's zero transformation in your life, we need to deal with a different question then. Because as I asked last week, has that ship sailed on radical change? No, it hasn't. So to wrap these up, in taking from uh, part one last week, we have this letter here to a young church in much affliction, but there was real reception of the gospel. In, in our therapeutic culture, it's, uh, we get the sense that we're never allowed to tell people that we're doing well, that we're joyful. We always have to act like there's something wrong or broken. But in Christ, it is that joy, that free-flowing assurance, rest and peace that you can say, yeah, I'm doing well. God is alive. God is active in my heart and in my life. We don't have to hide that. Our culture wants us to always be in need of some type of therapy. But no, we have Christ. We have his followers for us to be disciples of and imitators of. So let's pray. God, you are are far too faithful that we should... uh, bemoan our weaknesses and criticize endlessly, Lord. It takes away from your glory that you are active and at work in your saints. You promise to finish the work that you've begun. Lord, it's your work that as we behold you, we're being transformed. Lord, I pray that we would all be encouraged that you are active in our lives And Lord, let that be an encouragement to go forward all the more. We would be discouraged if we couldn't see any growth. So Lord, encourage us with it. But Lord, it's the greatest encouragement to us. Not that there's change in our lives, not that we're different than we used to be, but that God Almighty has chosen us. And Lord, let us remain in awe of that. Remain grateful to that. Lord, that as we continue to consider that, as we continue to inspect it, thereby we would be sanctified, we would be changed. Lord, do this in your saints. We know that it pleases you. May we join you in our efforts to imitate, to be disciples of, and to love Christ. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen.